You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. It's a pleasure to be with all of you. Um, if this is again, if this is your first time here, we're so happy that you can be with here, with us here today. If, if you're just visiting, or if you're here with one of the families who are taking first communion, we're so glad that you're here. You know, you can learn a lot about a person, um, strangely enough, through their funeral. Sometimes you learn a little too much. Uh, my parents told me that one time they were at uh, they were at a funeral. And um, they, they made the mistake of just kind of having an open mic for people to say whatever they wanted. And one man stood up in the back, not a lot of people only knew him, and he said, he was my roommate in college, and one of our favorite things to do was to stay up at late night singing Freebird. He said, I've already talked to the person running the sound system, can I play it? And they listened to the whole, I think they might have listened to like the extended, you know, one of the boot, bootleg cuts with like a seven-minute guitar solo in it. So you can learn a lot about someone from their funeral. Is it, uh, is the funeral, is it, is it a somber, formal affair? Or is it more celebratory, kind of a celebration of life? Is it uh, secular or is it religious? Is it, you know, a, a, a big service where someone, where there's hundreds of people that pack out a sanctuary? Or is it a more, um, family and friends, graveside affair. In today's text, we're going to read about a funeral. We're reading about the funeral of Jacob, the patriarch of the family, the covenant family. And through this funeral, we're going to learn a lot about him. What we're going to learn specifically is that one of his greatest concerns in his dying age was his family, that his family would know that the promises of Egypt didn't compare to the promises of God. That the promises of Egypt didn't compare to the promises of God. You see, uh, his family actually did very well in Egypt. We've seen that over the past couple of weeks. They get down there, and it's actually a time of great prospering for them. The families grow, they're livestock herders, so the herds grow. Um, they, they have this kind of relative time of peace and assurance because they're protected by the Egyptians. And, you know, due to Joseph, who's a part of their family, being the prime minister of Egypt, they enjoy a lot of respect and uh, care from the Egyptians. But the thing is, they were the covenant family. They were the people to whom God came and said, I am going to prepare for you a special land. And in this land, I'm going to cause you to be blessed, to grow and to flourish and bless the nations. But you can imagine that for some of the people, uh, for some of the covenant family sitting in the relative ease of Egypt, you have to wonder if they were thinking, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the place that God was talking about. Maybe this is the answer to all of those promises that he made for, to, to us. But in his dying days, Jacob, the patriarch of the family, is emphatic that he not be buried in Egypt, 
He wants to be buried back in Canaan, the place where God made the covenant with his forefathers. And in so doing, he's trying to remind them the promise of God is so much better than the promise of Egypt. So through his funeral, Jacob is teaching them what it means to be resident aliens. To reside in a place, to live in a place, but to be an alien in that place, to not have your home there. And that very same thing is true for us as well. We are resident aliens in this world. We live here, but our home isn't here. Our home is in the new heavens and the new earth that Christ is going to inaugurate upon his second return. So in order to better understand what it means for us to be resident aliens, I want us to look at, um, at this passage starting in Genesis 49. You can find it in your worship guide or certainly in Scripture. Uh, Genesis 49, we're going to start in verse 28, and then we're going to go through verse 14 of the next chapter. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, to the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as, you, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. He made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. 
Therefore, the place was named Abel Misraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight today, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this afternoon, I want us to consider very, two very simple questions. What does it mean to be a resident in this world, and what does it mean to be an alien in this world? So let's start with the first question. What does it mean to be a resident here? So our home isn't here, but until we make it home, we're living in this world. So what does it mean for us to live this side of the new heavens and the new earth? I actually think that the Joseph narrative that we've been studying for the past two months provides a lot of wisdom for this. But in order to see that, I actually want to frame our discussion with another passage of Scripture. A passage that's also written to a group of elect exiles. And I want to use that then to see in the Joseph narrative this wisdom for being uh, resident aliens. So if you would, um, I want you to also open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I want you to leave it open there because we're going to use, again, that piece of Scripture to help understand what we just read. So in his letter, Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are oppressed um, by the Roman government. And he's writing them, helping them to understand how the hope of heaven helps them to live in the here and now. And starting in verse 12, he says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, I want to focus on two things that Peter says here that we also see in our text from Genesis. Uh, As we're residents here, we need to focus on our actions and our attitude. First, our actions. As we live here, we need to bless the world around us with good deeds or good works. You know, sometimes whenever we talk about good works uh, in Reformed Presbyterian circles, we can get a little skittish. Because we're afraid of veering off into legalism or works righteousness. But scripture actually never pits works and grace against one another. Actually, they're complementary. Works are our response to God's free grace. The salvation that he's given us freely. We respond in thanks with good 
deeds. So good works don't earn God's grace, but rather they're evidence of God's grace at work in our life. Think about um, all the plants that are blooming right now and making us all think that we have COVID when really it's just allergies. All of these plants, the blooms are evidence of life in the plant. The plant's alive, it's growing. Well, the same is true with us and good works. Good works are evidence that the grace of God lives within us through the Spirit and is at work in our hearts. And Peter's saying here that these good works should be of such value to the world around us that even if someone disagrees vehemently about with us about our religious beliefs, they wouldn't be able to deny the value we've provided to our community. And we actually see this in our passage. You know, if you've been here um, throughout this series, there's this been this refrain that comes up where um, the author of Genesis says that, the, that sh- sheep herders and nomadic people are um, despicable to the Egyptians. And that's not great for the covenant family because they're sheep herders and nomadic people. But what do we see in today's passage? How do we see the Egyptians treating Jacob and his family at Jacob's funeral? They're giving him the equivalent of a royal funeral. The Egyptians are treating Jacob the same way they would treat a member of the royal family if they had died. And so what makes them do this for these types of people that they would typically despise? Well, it's the respect that Joseph earned with the good works that he did for the people of Egypt. If you remember Joseph and his role as the prime minister, he saved Egypt from complete obliteration uh, because of this global famine. And not only that, not only did he save them, he actually grew the empire at that time. He made them stronger. He was a national hero among the Egyptians. If Lin-Manuel Miranda had been there at the time, he would have written a a Hamilton-style musical about him. And it's those good works that earned favor with the Egyptians and caused them to honor Jacob, this person that typically they would have despised. Now, I'm not saying that God is calling you to save a civilization from famine, though if, I don't know, Maybe. I don't, want to put, I don't want to take that off the table is all I'm saying. I think that some of you probably really will do great things for our community, but I think for the majority of us, the good works that we do in this life are going to be acts of simple, mundane faithfulness. Uh, they're going to be treating coworkers with dignity and respect, lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need, volunteering to tutor children who just need a little bit of extra help to keep up in class. And so let me ask you this, what good deeds are you doing to bless the world around you? God has put you into all these various positions in life. How are you extending his, uh, his blessing to the world around you with your good deeds? 
you know, I, I'm looking out across uh, the room, and I know that there are so many things that so many of you are doing. But there is one that I want to highlight, one that I'm particularly proud of for our church. Um, you know, I've been thinking about this theme of home, which is kind of what about this text is about. And there are a number of people in our congregation right now who are providing homes for children who don't have them, whether through adoption or foster care or respite care. And, um, you know, this is something that actually Christians have, have had a long history with. Actually, the, Roman, uh, the Romans were first really stunned by the Christians because if the Romans didn't want a child, they would just kind of leave them out to the elements. And then the Christians would come and gather them up, and they would adopt them. And why would they do that? Well, because that's what God did to them. God came and found them and brought, him, brought them into his family. So they were then doing that for these children who were vulnerable and without care. And it makes me so happy to know that God has, uh, has kind of done a groundswell of this in our own congregation. It's my prayer that in 10 years from now, we're, we're, that's something that we're known for. And so if that's something that is of interest to you, if that's something you feel like God might be calling you to, um, please reach out to me because I would love to connect you with some families in our congregation that are doing that. Now also though, I know that this is not something that's for every family. So if you don't feel like you're called to that, but you do want to support families that are families or individuals that are doing that, again, contact me. You know, fostering and adoption and respite care, it's something that truly takes a village. And I know because I'm adopted and my, my church practically raised me alongside my parents. So if you want to help with that, again, please get in contact. I think this is an incredible way that God is using our church to be a blessing to our city, to care for vulnerable children. But we see here, it's not just our actions that matter as we reside here in this world. It's also, strangely enough, our attitude. In this passage, Peter gives a, a lot of, um, he talks a lot about the way that we treat people. He says that we're supposed to treat people honorably. And he actually gives us a great litmus test for that by asking, how do we treat those who are in authority over us? That's the real litmus test for whether or not we have an attitude of honoring the people in the world around us. How do we treat the people who have authority over us? Look back at verses 13 and 14. Be subject to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be the emperor, a supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now this is something that probably doesn't sit well with a lot of us. Our, our culture at large has a very anti-authority bent. And then frankly, within the walls of the church, sometimes that's exacerbated. And to be certain, there, there are times in which, and we see this even in scripture, that Christians are called to resist or to defy authority. And the rule of thumb is that you obey and submit to authority until your obedience would lead you to sin. And that's when you, you can't do it, you resist. But generally speaking, the Bible says that our posture to de, towards authority shouldn't be one of defiance, but instead one of submittance, of submission. And this flows from the fact that God is sovereign 
even over the rulers of the world. He's placed them there. Again, look at verse 14. God, Peter says that God installs emperors and governors as a, means of, uh, as a secondary means of him governing the world, restraining evil and promoting good. So we're to give honor, not worship, but honor, obedience, um, respect to those who are in authority over us. Again, we see this in the Joseph narrative. We see this in the way that Joseph interacts with the various people that are in authority over him throughout his entire life. Especially, we see it in the way he acts towards Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh certainly doesn't govern with the laws of Yahweh in mind. But despite that, Joseph at every turn is deferential and submissive towards him. He does Pharaoh's will. He carries it out. And we actually see that in today's text. We, you know, there's a lot of kind of, um, you wouldn't really catch it, but there's a lot of this uh, kind of courtly uh, intrigue about how Joseph goes about telling Pharaoh he wants to go to bury his dad. But what's going on there is that, you know, by using these intermediaries and using very choice language, uh, Joseph is trying to respect Pharaoh's position and to let him know that Joseph just isn't using this uh, as a way to find the exit door out of Egypt. He's trying to honor and respect Pharaoh. Now, living in a modern democracy uh, is certainly different than living in ancient Egypt. Um, being a citizen means that at times we're going to have to register dissent and complaint. We're going to have to stand against certain policies or uh, interests or parties. But that doesn't negate our Christian duty to honor those in authority over us. And so let me ask you this. Does the way that you talk about presidents and governors and senators, and even your boss, is it honoring to them? Or is it dishonoring? Now, some of you might look and say, um, yeah, it's not honoring because they don't deserve it. They're awful people. Do you know my boss? You actually do know my boss. He deserves honor. <laughs> um but, you know, you, maybe you think about this with a politician. You say, do you, do you know this, this person promotes evil? How could I honor them? To which I would respond, can you imagine what it took Peter to tell these Christians to honor the emperor? You know, the emperor at the time that he wrote this letter was Nero. Nero carried out the most heinous uh, persecution of the Christian community in the, in the, in the Roman Empire. And actually, Peter himself would die in Rome at the hands of Nero. And yet here he is saying, give proper honor to the emperor. And perhaps the reason that he was able to write that is because Peter knows what it's like to get what you don't deserve. Perhaps he was thinking about when Jesus honored him. You remember Peter turned his back on Jesus three times. He said, no, 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 I, I don't know this man. I don't want to be identified with him. And then Jesus comes to him and says, I'm going to build my church on you. Peter knows what it means to get what you don't deserve. 
And so he then turns around and gives that same grace to other people. So as we live this side of heaven, as we live in this earth, as we struggle to give honor to the authorities that God has placed above us, let's remember the way that God has shown us great honor when we didn't deserve it. And let's turn around and give that grace to them as well. So this side of heaven, as we live here, as we're residents here, we need to think about our actions, the way that we bless the world around us with good deeds, but also our attitude, the way that we honor those around us, especially those in authority. But what does it mean to be an alien? Right? We've talked about living here, but at the same time, this isn't our home. We see this throughout Scripture. Well, I want to suggest two things. First, we should follow God's law. Look back at 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 9. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So what Peter is telling us here, he's telling us to live in line with this new identity that we have in Christ. This new idea that we have in Christ is to be someone who reflects to the world around us the holiness of God. And we do that by following his commands, by following his law. You see, um, God's law is a reflection of who he is. It's a reflection of all of his perfection and his glory. It's a reflection of his holiness. And when we look at the law of God, we get a snapshot of what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like. Because think about it, when, when Jesus comes and he does away with sin and inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth, it's going to be a time of complete holiness and righteousness. It's not going to be in our nature to not walk with God. In fact, we're not going to be able to sin. We won't even know how to. It's going to be a time in which it's complete holiness and righteousness, which is what we all desperately long for. You know, holiness and righteousness, it can get a bad rap because it can give us these kind of images of being smug, holier, holier than thou. But look, every time that we feel the pain of sin and the curse of sin this side of the earth, we long for the shalom of heaven. And God's law is a reflection of that. So he's saying, Peter's saying, live according to God's law now because that's where your eternity is going to be. You know, um, you know we, we just moved into a new house. Um, but before we even moved into it, we started to prepare to move into it. You know, we were months out, but we started to line up contractors that when we got the house, they would start doing work. We weren't even in it yet, but we started to buy new furniture and new art. We started to plan out in our minds 
uh, where we were going to, you know, where, which kid was going to be in it, which room. We started to get our son excited about it because I said, buddy, we've, we've got this deck that's like 15 feet off the ground and we're going to launch your Hot Wheels cars down it. We were living in anticipation of the future. We were living then in line what we, with what we knew was coming. And when we live according to God's law now, that's what we're doing. We're living in line with the certain future. This time of perfect peace and shalom that's going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. And notice that when Peter says that we do this, we don't just do it for us and we don't just do it for God, but rather we do it for the world around us. He says that through this we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So the benefit of our holiness, it's not just for us to make us better people, it's not just to bring glory to God, but the world itself benefits from our holiness. It's because it's what empowers those good works that we just talked about. And, you know, we actually see um, this happening in this passage today. Notice what's really interesting is that the Egyptians are going to the promised land with Jacob and his family. They're following up. In some sense, they're given an invitation to come into the promise of God. Now they don't. And we learn a lot more about that when we get to the book of Exodus. But, the, but what we see here is that the covenant family is bringing them along. They're inviting them into the promise. And when we live lives marked by holiness, lives in which we follow God's law, that's what we're doing. It's like Madeline Lingle said, we are showing people Christ by showing them a light that's so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. So as aliens in this world live according to the law of God, live in line with the sure future that awaits us. And then also, as aliens in this world, cling to God's people. Cling to God's people. Or as, put, as Peter puts it in verse 17, honor the brotherhood. He's just talking about the church there. And we see that, you know, this is a question that is hanging over today's text for Joseph. The question is, is he going to be loyal to his family? Or is he going to be loyal to Pharaoh and to Egypt? There's a choice that's set out for him. And his carrying out Jacob's wish to be buried in Canaan is a sign that he's putting his eggs in the basket of, of, the, of his family. But next week, as we look at chapter 50, we're going to get an even more poignant example of this. Because when Joseph is on his deathbed, he's going to tell his brothers, carry, he says, you're going to be brought up out of Egypt. You're going to be taken to the promised land. Carry my bones there with you. He's doing just like his dad did here. He's looking and saying the promise of God is so much better than the promise of Egypt. And what he's saying is the, the promise people are so much better than the people of where he was. 
And so the question lies before us today too. Where do our loyalties lie? Do they lie with the world or do they lie with the church? And now I realize that some of you might be some of you might hear that and you might say, You don't know what's happened to me in the church. You don't know the way I've been treated. You don't know the things that Christians have done to me. How can you expect me to say that my loyalties lie with the church? And I don't want to minimize that. There's real hurt and real pain that has happened within the walls of the church. And it is damnable and regrettable in every way. But I also want you to notice that Joseph experienced a lot of hurt at the hands of his family too. His dad pitted him and his brothers against one another. His brothers tried to kill him. And yet he throws his lot in with them and not with Egypt. Egypt, the place that had treated him so well. Egypt, the place that held out so much promise of uh, power and wealth and security. And Joseph said, no, my lot lies with my family. And it's because they're the covenant people. They're the people who bear the promise. And friends, we, the church, are the same. By the waters of baptism, we're brought into the covenant family. We're made a party to the promise and the covenant of God. So where do your loyalties lie? Do they lie with the world? Or do they lie with the, the promised people? Admittedly, this, is, this isn't easy. It's hard. Because our faith is often weak. You know, earlier, um, this is why we had... This is why we had Kaylee read Hebrews 11. Because what the author of Hebrews is showing us is that the entire book of Genesis really is about people walking by faith and not by sight. And that is what all of this is going to require of us. To look up at the promise and not here at the world. But like I said... Uh, this is hard because our faith is often weak. It's hard for us to not see uh, the church. It's hard for us to not see the church the way that Christ sees the church. As we see it in the book of Revelation. A bride washed clean, ready for the bridegroom. It's hard to see that. But that's why every week we come to the Lord's table. Because it's here where we see the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And friends, so friends, when, it, when the allure of the world feels great, look to Jesus. Because he is the very substance of the promise. And the Lord's table is a reminder every week that he is yours. It's an assurance that the promise is real. And just like the hymn says, one day our faith will be made sight. So friends, we're resident aliens in this world. 
as we live here, as we reside here, let's take, let's take care to do good works and to honor the world around us. But also, let's remember that our lasting home isn't here. And let's cling to God's word, let's follow his law, and let's cling to his people, the church. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you that you have given us this great promise that you extended uh, to these people thousands of years ago. And we thank you, Father, that you fulfill that promise in Christ. And Father, we thank you for the good news that Christ is ours and we are his. Father, it is often so hard to believe that. It is so hard to live according to the promise and not according to the ways of the world. Say, Father, through this meal, would you sustain us and send us out and to be able to be people who live according to the promise. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.